This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by The Jesus Music, the new documentary from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. If you ever follow any true crime stories, whether on the news or in books written about famous cases, you no doubt have heard the term person of interest. Now, this refers to somebody who hasn't been arrested or charged with any offense, but is an object of special attention by law enforcement as they're investigating a crime. So in a missing person murder case, for example, you have no body, you have no crime scene, but you might have one significant person who emerges as the person of interest. Now, what if you were to use the same methodology a detective would employ in that kind of a case and apply it to Jesus Christ to discover the truth about his claim to be God? What would you learn about who he is if you couldn't use the Bible? And what would that investigation yield? We're going to tackle all of that today with my next guest, Jay Warner Wallace. He is a cold case homicide detective, a popular speaker and author, and he is out with another great new book about this subject that we're going to discuss. It's called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. And Jim, wonderful to welcome you back to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to talking to you particularly. This is going to be good. Oh, you're so nice. Well, I always enjoy having you here. It's great for me to have you and great for the listeners to listen to this subject. This is an interesting phrase, person of interest. I understand this kind of came about during the 96 Atlanta bombings with Richard Jewell. That was the first time people really kind of heard it, person of interest. What is the significance, would you say, of this term as you're applying it to Jesus, though? Well, okay, so you're right. You, you nailed it right. You, you described it perfectly. I, I typically have never used this expression in my criminal cases until the very end of my career because it wasn't really, look, if I've got a potential suspect, I'll just tell you he's a potential suspect. If I don't want you to know that, I'm not going to call him anything. Right, <laughs> right, so, right. But really what we're talking about here is, what, you know, I've worked a lot of these no-body murder cases where we get somebody who claims that his wife ran off and really she didn't run off, and he convinces her family, he convinces his family, he convinces the initial detectives, and then years go by, and she never returns, and we realize this is not a missing case. This is a murder case, but we've now got no crime scene and no evidence because no one considered it, and no one took photographs, and now they've remodeled the house, and you know, there's no way to go back and kind of redo all of that. So, so how do you make a case to a jury when you've got no evidence from a crime scene? Well, you, you just kind of tell them that on the day she went missing, if this is a murder, something explosive took place. And that bomb was preceded by a long fuse that burns slowly up to the detonation. And after it explodes, there's debris everywhere. So we can make a case just from the fuse and the fallout, even if we've got nothing on the day of the murder. And this is the same thing you could do with Jesus. Look, I wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity, where I looked at all the evidence in the crime scene, quote-unquote, of the New Testament, right? That's just the book that has all the eyewitness accounts. But if you were not willing to look at that, if they destroyed every single New Testament on the planet, you could still make the case for the historicity and deity of Jesus from just the fuse and the fallout. 
Well, that is an interesting diagram that you've got in the book. People can see it when they pick up the book. But this idea that I think the way you said it was the more significant the event, the more you need to go back and see the things that led up to it. Now, how does that apply, would you say, when you're looking at the history and the and the background of the times in which Jesus lived and some of these particular examples you give of his significance in various ways? What What is the fuse and the fallout as it pertains to Jesus? So, so look, I, when I first got interested in this, um, I, my wife was starting to kind of wonder, should we have our kids raised in some type of transcendent worldview? And, you know, I wasn't raised that way. Uh, for 18 years we've been together, we'd never really even talked about God. And so I, I thought, well, if you, I, I wasn't raised this way, but if you want to go to church. So we went to a church, and the pastor said that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. And that's really what got me started. I thought that that's true. Look, if he look, allegedly the entire calendar in which we live changed, the uh, the, uh, the uh, common era was initiated by something that happens in the first century. Mm-hmm. Now, if Jesus is who he said he was, right, God in the flesh, wouldn't you expect there to be some views leading up to his exp- uh, you know kind of explosive appearance in history, yeah. and wouldn't you expect that there would be a huge like, ripple effect in history from his appearance? I mean, that's, that's really – now, look, I would have said as an atheist, well, I don't think there is. But that's because I really hadn't studied the history leading up to Jesus, and I certainly hadn't studied the, my own culture that I was living in that was the result of Jesus. And so I think that's part of what we're trying to do in this book is to show that the beauty of Jesus is so clear in the history leading up to him, that fuse that burns prophetically, that fuse that burns culturally, that fuse that burns even in the heart of ancient people groups who are imagining God in one form of myth or another, all of this prepares the stage and sets a window of opportunity for the appearance of Jesus. And then afterwards, you've got things like the visual arts and music and literature and education and science and world religions that are forever changed and actually shaped foundationally by the person of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. So I think that's the kind of step that we're trying to show, especially young people, Janet, because you know that we're not teaching this in schools. No. If you're in public schools, you, you have, as a matter of fact, most of the Christian identity of the most important figures in history has pretty much been scrubbed from the history books. So, so it's a matter of us trying to go back and say, well, do you realize that this was all founded on a Christian worldview mm-hmm. initiated by Jesus of Nazareth yeah. and enacted by his followers? Most young people, I don't think you have any idea. Oh, no, you're right about that. I mean, you have it right there in your subtitle, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. And we do live in a world that rejects the Bible, which creates all kinds of challenges. How did that liability, as it were, impact the way you decided to put together the book in the way you did? Because, for example, when you say the fuse had to be long leading up to Jesus's birth, we would say as Christians, when we look at the Word of God, well, it all began in the beginning when Jesus, you know, in the Word uh, was there at the beginning and God created the world, etc. We go from there. With a skeptic, would you take a different approach when you're talking about the beginning of the fuse? Yeah, actually, I think that's that's one third of what I think is that significant fuse. It's the writings of the Old Testament writers, both in terms of prophecy and laying the foundation for the coming Messiah. That overarching worldview: How do we get here? Why is it so messed up? How do we fix it as established in the Old Testament? But that's only one aspect, and I would understand if you said, "Hey, I don't want to be part of that." Well, well, there's a cultural aspect of this. Is just if you study the advancement of the empires leading up to the appearance of the first century. 
that, that common era. If you just study what's happening culturally and governmentally and, and the technology that is changing in terms of writing, in terms of the roads that are now available so that any idea, when it finally appears in the first century, has feet, it can move. Mm-hmm. Just all of that. If you study the spirituality that is non-Christian, right, all of the ancient myths that are typically said, well, Jesus is just a copycat myth, you know, he's he borrowed from all the other myths. Well, what if it's just the opposite? What if God has put in us, as since we're designed in his image, all of us, whether we know God or not, are still designed in the image of God. And we have in our expectations of God, by the way, the vast majority, I show this in the book in terms of recurrent surveys, the vast majority of humans on planet Earth expect there and think there is a higher power of one nature or another. That's ingrained in our DNA. As a matter of fact, this, uh, this, people who are studying this now say that that is our default position. Hmm. It's not atheism. It's some form of theism. And if we have these common expectations that manifest themselves in various ways in prior thoughts about God, which come out in the form of mythologies, why wouldn't we expect then God to show up and be the one most robust fulfillment of our expectations? And that's exactly what Jesus is. So you can kind of trace these fuses leading up. And I try to show in the book, and it's very visual. Like I, I'm a visual person, and, and I asked Zonervan to allow me two years to build the kinds of presentations I would use in front of a jury. And they let me do that. And then I took those presentations and created a book. But that's why there's over 400 illustrations in just about 250 some odd pages, because I'm trying to show you what the kind of thing I would show a jury. And I think in the end, you can see from that fuse that there's a small window of opportunity from about 29 B.C. to about 70 A.D. in which something explosive is about to happen. And that just so happens to be when the common era starts. That just so happens to be right smack dab in the middle of that is the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, right. And do you find it to be even more significant that as important and as crucial as the Bible is to telling us who the Son of God is, that you can make a case by going outside of the Bible that backs it up. I mean, that 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 seems like all the more reason to go back to the Word of God and say, wow, we really have something here. This really is God's Word. No, absolutely. No, look, and I, I will tell you that a lot of Christians who kind of get the sense of, well, you're trying to dis- disregard God's Word. No, no, no. That's not what I'm doing at all. What I'm showing is that Jesus is so important. It's not that He matters because the world is shaped this way. The world is shaped this way because He matters. It's just the opposite. And so that's what I'm aiming at in this book. That's so great. Well, we're going to dive into more on this. Jay Warner Wallace joins us. Person of Interest is his book. We'll return after this. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. 
This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Aria lives in the Middle East in a radical Muslim family. She accepted the invitation of a Christian friend to attend a weekly Bible study and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. She took her Bible study booklet home, hiding it in her room before her mother found it and gave it to her father. He severely beat young Aria and called the authorities to report her as an infidel. They took her to a remote cell where they assaulted her and the Christian friend before letting them go. These two women didn't grow bitter. They grew bold and together they've seen hundreds come to Christ in the Middle East where Christians are urged to support new believers. You suddenly realize how critical it is for Christians not just to assume God will look after their brothers and sisters who have converted from Islam, but that they will be prepared to walk with them. Help send God's word to believers like Aria. One Bible is only $5, and a limited time match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. Welcome back. So good to have you with us and great to have with us Jay Warner Wallace, author of Person of Interest. He's a cold case homicide detective, very popular speaker and author. And if you've never heard him explain how he brings together his expertise in cold case homicide detective work with his understanding of Christ and Christianity and the Bible, you're going to want to stay tuned. We were talking about this really unique approach, I think, Jim, that you've put together in this book, which is backing up the word of God, as you say, by looking at all of the reasons that Jesus matters throughout history. One of the things, and you touched on this before we went to the break, was the timing of Jesus's arrival on earth. And I think you you talk about this a little bit in the book. Could this have been as significant if Jesus were born at any period in time because he was God and he could show up at any time? But you address one of the things being the advance in writing technology that occurred at a very, very important period of time, which was when Jesus arrived. Why did that matter? And what are you talking about there? Well, I get this question all the time, like, why did Jesus show up in in the first century? Why didn't he show up 2,000 years earlier? So 2,000 years ago, the people would have known who he was. Why didn't he show up last year, you know, so that that you use the technology we have today? Well, look, a lot of this, I'll be honest, and I've said this before, and it seems like it's kind of controversial to some people, but but honestly, if, if a miracle worker showed up in 2021 and used social media to get the word out, would you believe it? I mean, there are miracle workers right now, allegedly, who are on social media, and most of the time you're thinking, well, is that CG? Is that computer graphics? I mean, do I trust anything I see on video anymore? I, I used the example that Tom Brady, a couple, you know, about a month ago, had this video going out where he was throwing a football into a football feeder, and he would hit the apex of the feeder. It would kick it back to him. He would throw it again and again, and it was like, oh, my gosh, who has this kind of pinpoint accuracy? Only to find out later it was all a video hoax. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff I don't think we would even believe if it came out today, but it turns out that as history evolved toward the first century, as God shaped the history and the rise and fall of empires and of technologies, a number of, of, of aspects of culture were approaching the first century simultaneously. For example, uh, how you write. You know, if all we had were pictographs, like we used to have in 3000 BC, and you had some form of cuneiform or pictographs, it would be very hard, for example, to communicate the Sermon on the Mount because of the complexity of the sermon and the lack of, of, of uh, complexity in the pictographs. You would have a hard time explaining what Jesus said in that sermon. Also, if you were writing it in clay tablets like they were in, in, in pictographs and in cuneiforms, that stuff doesn't, doesn't hold up very well. But as, as the, the language developed and a pure alphabet appears and then is referred 
confined all the way to with all of its vowels to the Etruscan alphabet that appears very you know much later in history. Well, that's the alphabet that the Romans adopted, and as they conquered the known world, they advanced that alphabet. By that time, they also had the advancement of papyrus, so they could write the alphabet on something in the spoken Greek language they were using from the Greek culture they had conquered. And now you've got a way to communicate a truth. As a matter of fact, they even developed the roads, the postal systems, and there was a unique 200-year period of peace called the Pax Romana, in which, like for example, Paul could safely travel the roads that were now available to him to communicate the message using the letters he could send on papyrus with given languages that were now available and the technology was such that he could write in these languages and use them and send them as he's traveling on these roads. By the way, the Romans, because of that peacetime uh, effort, were kind of gearing up, right? They were creating roads they could use future militias could travel on. Those militias had a hard time taking sharp turns. So they would go through things and over things rather than around things. And that meant that they became some of the greatest tunnel and bridge builders the world has ever seen. And this is one of those things you can use then. You know, that expression, all roads lead to Rome? Well, that's actually pretty true back in the day. And they were able to connect to like the Silk Road from Asia. You had access now by way of roads to places that were, you know, beforehand were limited to the small empire region in which you happen to live, if it was the Egyptian empire or the Persian or whatever. So you see that, that, that there's an aspect in which the table is being set so that if someone appears with a, a, a world-changing message, that message, even the postal service that was available by the time of the Roman Empire, now you can, can communicate that message to the world. It's almost like somebody planned it out, isn't it? It's almost like like he was sent in the fullness of time, just as Paul said he was. Yeah, amazing. You know, something else you touched on, which was the Roman Empire, the growth of the Roman Empire. It was required in order for the person and message of Jesus to change the world. You talk about the size of the Roman Empire, the power of the Roman Empire. But I thought it was interesting. You also touched on its religious tolerance, which was not something that was common. Talk about that a little bit and how significant that ends up being for Jesus appearing during that period of history. Yeah, now if you think about it, most conquering nations, when they would conquer a people group, they would pretty much eradicate their ability to worship the gods that they had been worshiping. Now, the Romans had a different approach. If they conquered a region, they would allow the local people groups to continue to worship their native uh, gods or myths or whatever, but they also had to kind of eventually bend a knee to the Roman gods. But they would allow, they would embrace, as a matter of fact, you'll see that some of these uh, other gods that are worshiped by conquered groups, like the Greeks, end up becoming renamed, and they appear then in the Roman pantheon of gods. So they had a kind of sense of at least you can get your get started. Now, look, at some point, if you're not going to bend your knee to the Roman gods, you're going to suffer persecution. But what was interesting about that, that sense of, of relative tolerance for religious groups that allowed Christianity to get a foothold, to get started. So by the time it's pretty obvious this is another group that has to be dealt with by the Romans, they've got enough inertia in place to be able to continue to grow. And you'll see that in those first 300 years before the Edict of Milan and the Edict of Thessalonica, you know, the, the, the Romans were either, depending on the, on the emperor, the Christians were either being persecuted, roughly tolerated, kind of ignored. There's different levels of persecution they face, some, some quite severe. But at least initially, the fact they can get their, 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 their leg up and get going was because there was a sense in which, hey, if I conquer a group, you can hold on to your gods. Let's sort that out later. But for now, you can continue to worship your own gods. Well, it's interesting. The other thing that comes to mind is people will often say, did Jesus have to die on a cross? He was killed, clearly. He died for our sins. He shed his blood. And that was very significant. That's how we're saved. And then rose again on the third day. 
Do you attach any significance, Jim, to crucifixion? That crucifixion was a form of capital punishment during that period of time, and that was also an important part of God's plan. Well, I think there's a couple, and I've got a kind of evidential reason for it. Okay, so you know you're talking to me, I'm always going to give you something that I found <laughs> to be a kind of a quirky evidential insight. And what I think is interesting, one of those fuses I do uh, trace is the prophetic fuse, right, from the Jewish prophecies that predict the coming of the Messiah. Because if you look at them, I don't think I've ever seen anybody do it this way. What I tried to do is just to develop a timeline. What's the fuse? What are the earliest prophecies? Most of the time when you read prophecies, they're grouped by you know, what they address. Uh, this is the prophecy about, you know, this is about his birth. These are the prophecies about his life. These are prophecies about his death. What if you went and grouped the prophecies based on when they were given? Well, if you do that, it helps to answer the why did Jesus come when he came question, because it turns out the what, when, why, how, where questions, so you can get to a who, those questions are not robustly answered until you get pretty close to Malachi. And so you get a place where now I know I can answer those five questions, and I have a clear idea of who the who is. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because it seems to me that one of the earliest, one of the uh, mid-range prophecies is uh, that, that the Messiah will be pierced, right? Yes. It's in the Old Testament Isaiah. prophecy. Mm-hmm. That prophecy is being made before crucifixion was the common way of executing criminals. Mm. So, so it shows me that to, to, to kind of guess in far in advance that the Messiah would be killed in this way by being pierced is interesting, right? It acts like an evidential marker because you, you don't even have kind of like a lay of the land where you know, well, lots of people get crucified, so I could just guess this. You're actually describing something that hasn't become the tradition yet. And so I think that, kind of, for me, gave it even more evidential value. That's true. So then if Jesus had died in an electric chair, that would not have been a fulfillment of that prophecy. He could not have been the Messiah had he not That's been right. crucified. Or if he was stoned to death. Yes. Right? Or if he was in some other way executed, the idea that he was pierced for our transgressions, mm. that to me is something that it, it's, a, it's a, either a really good guess. Now, look, I've separated prophecy between clear and cloaked. So I have a, a separation for that evidentially. I describe that in the book. So I am not somebody who says that, hey, you know, every single prophecy in the Old Testament is so clear you ought to got it. And you, ought to, you, know, you should have figured it out. And I actually think that some of that is cloaked. The same way some evidence at a crime scene is cloaked, and I can only uh, attach it to the, to the bad guy after I meet him. Like if there's a button on the floor, I may not know if it even belongs to the bad guy. But if I meet that guy and he actually has a button missing from his shirt, well, now that piece of kind of confusing cloaked evidence at the crime scene, I wasn't even sure if it was valuable, now it's very valuable. And some prophecies are like that, right? Where if you were to read those at the time, you might think, is this even about the Messiah? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But afterwards, it clearly describes Jesus. So like the button that's missing from his shirt it confirms Jesus after the fact. And this distinction between clear and cloaked, I think, is important as we kind of read through the New Testament, because a lot of what the, apost- the gospel writers are talking about is that evidence is more like a button, right, than like a fingerprint that identifies you from the beginning. Buttons might identify you after the fact. Right. And that's what I think that kind of prophecy does. That's interesting. I remember hearing a, a talk once, some Bible scholar was saying that he was very involved in Messianic evangelism. And he said, I've never had an experience with a Jewish person who read Isaiah and I heard Isaiah and I would read that prophecy to them. And then I would ask them, who is that? And they all say, oh, it's Jesus. And then I would say, but that's from Isaiah. And some of them didn't even put the two and two together. That kind of goes along with what you're saying about cloaked evidence. After the fact, you realize, oh, that was Jesus in a way that you might not have if you were reading it as someone who is Jewish, just reading the Old Testament. But clear evidence, what would you point to as some of the most clear evidence going back to prophecy in the Old Testament? Okay, so I'm looking for that evidence that, that even Jewish people today would say, yeah, that, is, that was understood back then. We still understand it today as a, as a messianic prophecy. 
and I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. So, so I would be willing, just for sake of argument, to limit my clear prophecies to just what they say is clear messianic prophecy. Very interesting, by the way. They will take a look at a lot of prophecy from Isaiah, but not from Isaiah 53. <laughs> but yeah. so, so it seems to me if you're going to like, toss some of this out, you ought to be at least consistent about it. Now, I also talk about the difference between a reliable informant and a regular informant. Both can be used in trial, and both can be helpful to your case. But reliable informants are people who have already given you good information that actually stood the test of an investigation and maybe even a, a trial prior. Now, the second time they come to you, you already they are deemed reliable because of their past information to you. Now, there are some prophets who make prophecies about history that actually come true. Not every prophet, by the way, does that. Hang on just a moment. I hate to have to pause, but we do need to do so. Jay Warner Wallace with us, Person of Interest, the book, and we'll come back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by The Jesus Music, the new documentary from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. It is always fascinating to go back and see why Jesus does matter in a world that rejects the Bible by looking not only at the Word of God, but looking outside the Bible. And we're exploring this whole subject today with Jay Warner Wallace, cold case homicide detective and Christian speaker and apologist. His new book is Person of Interest. Now, you were talking, Jim, before we went to the break about this difference between clear evidence and cloaked evidence, particularly in reference to Messianic prophecy. And I had asked you what would be some examples of clear evidence. You were discussing the concept of a reliable informant. And I wanted to let you finish explaining how that all plays into this. Yeah. So, so reliable informants are people who have given you accurate information prior to this next bit of information they're giving you. And there are a number of these in the Old Testament. Not every prophet, for example, makes a prediction at all about history, but many do. And for those prophets who make those kinds of predictions, and then the history actually occurs, right, Mm -hmm. as they predicted it would occur, well, now they actually have a sense of reliability, a sense of stature that even exceeds those who haven't made uh, predictions about history. And there are a number of these. Now, Isaiah is one of those. Uh, Daniel is one of these. And so I look at those those, um, reliable uh, informants, and I think, hey, you know, we should trust, or should at least look and consider seriously what it is they have to say about the coming Messiah. But let's go back for a second. You, You talked about you know, the difference between clear and cloaked evidence. And there's, that's a big difference. And so what I try to do in my uh, investigation of this is, number one, write down all of the um, uh, uh, prophecies in the order in which they occur. Because there's um, a, a ton of these that you'll see the earliest prophecies basically are pretty broad. So if you look at the prophecies that are right around 1400 BCE, and, and you can look at these from like, even, even, for example, Moses and Job both say things that we would consider that many scholars would consider messianic. But what do they tell you? Well, the, prophe- the, 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 um, the Messiah is going to be a, a human born of a woman. Okay, well, that, that's pretty much everybody. Okay, <laughs> is going to be male. So now I cut the, the group in half: a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, and a reconciler. Not a lot of data. If, if he used to show up right now at that point, 
you'd have a hard time being able to say, well, look, he fulfills the prophecies, because pretty much a lot of people have fulfilled those prophecies, perhaps. But now as you get further and further in time, the, the, the list gets narrowed, and you start to eliminate more potential candidates until finally he is the last one. So when you talk about the difference between clear and cloak now, I make a list in the, in the book. So, for example, if you look at the psalmist, David, Solomon, and Asaph, these are prophecies written between about 1060 and about 1015 BCE. You will find that only a few are very specific and can, like a fingerprint, would identify the, the, the suspect before you ever meet him. He, for example, is called God's son, and he is known for righteousness and executed without bones broken, doesn't see decay, and makes known the path of life. I actually think that those... I, a list, a complete list with a complete uh, end notes so you can see exactly which prophecies I'm talking about and where to find them. But you'll also see that in that period of time, uh, five times more prophecies that are usually identified in that period of time are cloaked than are clear. Mm. They're the kinds of prophecies that, well, yes, once you identify the Messiah, you'll be able to say, wow, this is all happening right in front of our eyes. He matches all of this. And I actually have a complete list of all the clear and clear. Here's my whole point in doing that, though, Janet. If all you did was use just the clear prophecies from just the handful of, of prophets who are reliable based on their prior accurate predictions of history, you would still have enough information to recognize this as Jesus as Nazareth. Mm-hmm. So I, when I make a case to somebody who's maybe a, a skeptic of prophecy, I limit myself to just those clear prophecies made by reliable informants because I want to take out, you know, this argument. And, and, and it's a real argument, Janet. I had a, a young man call me about two months ago who works at a major ministry here in Southern California and is deconstructing his faith. And one of his biggest complaints was he said he believed that the authors of the New Testament had abused prophecy, and, and, and these weren't even clear messianic prophecies to the Jews at the time. And he says, I don't think that, we, that that's, that's a valid way to use prophecy. Well, no, it is a valid way. The same way I would compare a button found at the crime scene to your shirt after the fact, and it would identify you. Would you, would you, would you honestly uh, uh, want me to destroy all the cloaked evidence at a crime scene? No. I'm going to capture every piece, photograph every piece, collect every piece, and make my case later with every piece. And that's fair here, too. That's a really good point. I'm glad he talked to you. You're a good person to talk to. And, and, you know, it's interesting when you see some of those mathematical computations on the likelihood of one person fulfilling even a fraction of the Old Testament prophecies. It's hard to ignore that. I know a lot of skeptics will turn and say, well, I just discount the Bible. It's just a book of myths. I don't believe anything in it. Why would you treat the Bible as any, like you would not treat any other book, just dismiss it out of hand without looking at what it's presenting? That would be hard to get around, even if, as your friend was saying, oh, I have some problems with what the New Testament authors did. You can't ignore the rest of those prophecies. That's not even the way you would analyze evidence if you were doing detective work, right? Well, right. And we're just talking about the fuse leading up to Jesus. So if you don't want to even consider any of the prophecies of the Old Testament, no problem. Let's leave them out. There's still enough evidence in the fuse to tell you that something, and clearly something did happen, even if I was to say, well, there's no evidence from the history leading up to the first century. Well, something happened in the first century that changed our calendars. So I think that, again, cumulative cases are cumulative for a reason, right? Like people ask me, what was the one thing that convinced you he was the murderer? Well, there isn't typically one thing. If there was one thing, this would have got solved 35 years ago with the one thing, right? But there is no one thing. You build these cases cumulatively on the basis of a large body of physical or, or, or circumstantial evidence that ultimately seems just too heavy to ignore. 
So I think that's what I try to. Ha- this is why when people ask me, "Well, can you help me, uh, you know, learn about Jesus from history?" Well, do you have two and a half hours? Because <laughs> I can't. This is not a one piece kind of a deal. This is a cumulative case, and that's why I try to illustrate it in the book that way. So I want people to see, yeah, Jesus has had an amazing impact cumulatively on a ton of different aspects of culture, and cumulatively, those different aspects of culture point back to Jesus as history's most important person of interest. Absolutely, I want to get into that in just a couple of minutes, but I wanted to ask you about your chapter on Jesus, a copycat savior, because some people say that the story of Jesus was just borrowed from prior dying and rising savior myths. I mean, how do you disprove that? Well, here's what I look at. I I went back and I read all of the myths that people typically use to say Jesus copied from these. And here's what I identified. It took a while to do. I actually had a research assistant help me on this because I kept on finding things. So, So I identified like 15 common attributes of ancient mythologies. And if you start to identify those, just broadly, because I'm going to tell you, if, if, if the common attribute, for example, is that the, that the God appears in nature uh, supernaturally, unexpectedly, in an unnatural way, well, that could be he popped out of the side of a mountain, that could be he, he was born of a fish, that could mean he came out of the thigh of another God, it could be a number of different ways. Now, they're all very different, but the general principle is he comes into the world supernaturally. Well, it turns out those are kind of the common 15 expectations of ancient people groups. And no mythology has more than about 10. Some have as few as six. But you can see these patterns of common expectations. Then we get to Jesus of Nazareth, who is the only person in the history of persons who possesses all 15 attributes. So whatever expectations you had as an ancient, well, God should be like this. When you, Paul says, you know, I, you're all pretty religious here. You know, on Mars Hill, he yeah. says, you're all pretty religious. I see even tombs and monuments to unknown gods here. But I'm here to tell you where you got it right and where you got it wrong, because we know who the real God is, because we saw him rise from the grave. Yeah. And he happens to possess all 15 attributes that everyone of any age, any place on the planet was expecting. That, to me, is, by the way, when the, um, when the expected uh, meets all of the expectations of the expector, you have a tendency to get a better response. Mm. And that's why you see that Christianity hits the ground, and it's like it's hitting the ground and running. Why? Well, because Jesus is, what C.S. Lewis would say, he is God's myth. All of the others are human myths. He's not using the word myth to mean a falsehood. He's using the word myth to mean a narrative about deity explaining the way we got here, explaining the world, how God interacts in the world. And Lewis put it quite well. It's that Jesus is God's myth that is grounded in what we call real things, whereas the myths that precede Jesus are the myths of humans and from the minds of poets and thinkers, just given what they've seen in the world around them. And there's the difference. So it's not as though these similarities somehow betray the fact that Jesus copied them. By the way, do you really think that people who are trying to convince Jewish believers that Jesus is the Messiah are going to copy from every pagan, non-Jewish tradition <laughs> in their case? I know. get real. But the point is, uh, it makes sense that Jesus would, as God incarnate, embody the imagination and the thoughts of humans who are created in God's image. Interesting. We're going to pause for another break. Jay Warner Wallace, Person of Interest, is the book. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today. If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. 
Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at mercyships.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. From Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine comes a new documentary, The Jesus Music. Jesus Music found its way in my hometown and it changed my life. I saw contemporary Christian music born right before my very eyes. I think music is the most powerful universal language in the world. Featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music, including Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Toby Mack, and Kirk Franklin. The Jesus Music, now playing. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Wow, this has gone so fast. Jay Warner Wallace, cold case, homicide detective, popular speaker and author. Book is Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. You can check out more at his website, jwarnerwallace.com. So I want to get into this fascinating section of the book. It's all fascinating, Jim. It really is. But this impact that Jesus has had on culture is so wild. When you get into all the detail that you put out in the book, it's just great. He dramatically affected literature. I want to talk about the books first. Can you talk about the fact that nearly twice as many books exist about Jesus as about his the second guy in line, which is Shakespeare? That That's just incredible to see that. Yeah, regardless of who, what source you use, if you use the National Congress, Library of Congress, or if you use just Google Books, and you search for uh, titles and, and places where Jesus of Nazareth is the primary featured subject matter, you will find that no one has been written about, no historical figure for sure has ever been written about as much as Jesus of Nazareth. Even other religious deities, God's leaders, all that kind of stuff, no one has been written about as much. as It's just, it's, it's not, and I looked at Google, uh, Google Books because, let's face it, that's a global uh, and it includes even you know self-written books, self-published books. So these are the kinds of things that I think that are kind of show the depth to which he has an impact. But look, even that you might say, well, look, if a, if a fictional character is popular enough, he might have that kind of impact. But interestingly, if you were to go back and look at all of the ancient manuscripts in the first 300 years of the empire, the first 300 years after the life of Jesus, and just isolate the voices that are Christian, like the church fathers, versus the voices who want to steal Jesus for their own purposes, like the non-canonical gospels, and people who don't like Jesus at all, like the Greeks, Persians, Egyptians, Jews, anybody who's not a Christian, you will find that there are more non-Christian voices recorded on ancient manuscripts than there are Christian voices who are saying something about the person of Jesus. Hmm. And from just the non-Christian voices, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus in its entirety. So here's what I mean. You could not eliminate 
the person of Jesus by simply destroying the New Testament. You have to destroy so much ancient, so many ancient manuscripts and the record of those ancient manuscripts, so many books that have been written throughout history, even today, about Jesus, so many screenplays. No one is the most popular, the most watched movie in the history of movies is still the Jesus film, been translated into more uh, uh, languages than any other movie and seen by more eyeballs than any other movie. You'd have a hard time erasing Jesus from history based on just the, the the, the, the effort to destroy the New Testament. That's the kind of impact. By the way, there are actually um, uh, Christ figures, uh, Christ figures that are out there that are fictional characters written throughout history by artists, by, by, by writers, who are including the elements and the characteristics of Jesus in their primary characters. And now we have a, a genre of, of literature known as Christ figures. So there's a lot of ways in which you cannot erase Jesus from the collective memory of writers because he so permeates all of history. Very true. I, I was thinking about John twenty one twenty five when it says, now there are also many yeah. other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Wow. Well, think how many more books we would have if those things had been written down. Oh, exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that is astounding. How about music? Clearly, we have so many hymns. We have so many Christian songs, Christian, uh, you know, references to Jesus in music. But it isn't just confined to hymns, is it? It's popular music as well. Oh, yeah. The, the impact that Jesus is, it, like this, the Judeo-Christian worldview is a worldview that sings, right? It starts with David. It uh, looks like Jesus is probably singing one of David's psalms, the Last Supper. Paul tells us we should be singing hymns and, and spiritual songs, and we continue to do that. As a matter of fact, if all you had were the hymns sung by Christians in the first 300 years before it becomes a religion of the empire, you could reconstruct the entire, we still have these hymns, you could reconstruct the entire history, uh, the entire story of Jesus, plus the theology of Christianity just from hymns. But you're right. I, I did a, re- a search of all of the top artists in the last 100 years based on three secular uh, databases that are out there. It ends up being about 150 artists, all but two had sung a song about Jesus. Not all of them are positive. I like Frank Zappa's song, uh, Jesus Thinks You're a Jerk. <laughs> that's his song. But the point is, people sing about Jesus. He inspired. Look, that's not happening. For what There were a lot of, of, of religious figures that preceded Jesus. Indra, uh, Buddha, um, uh, Krishna, um, the Hinduism. You, you will not see anyone singing about those in the, the way that we are. And it's not just Western music. It's that, 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 let's face it, Western music was imported to the entire world. And by the way, whatever form of music you're singing, if you think about it, if you're singing harmonies, if you're singing using musical notation, that's because a Christ follower created those things. Mm-hmm. He's had that kind of impact on the history of music. Because think about it, where in the world else do you go where every weekend people are on a stage singing to an audience? Yeah. That is pretty much Christendom, and that's why so much music comes out of the Christian tradition. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And symphonies as well, you think of Handel's Messiah Absolutely. and Bach, and there's so many composers who honor God in their music. It's just overwhelming to think and compile it all. This is interesting, too. You touch on the modern education revolution, and that certainly cannot be discounted, even in our own country, when you go back to the pilgrims and the Puritans who originally settled our nation. Uh, Christianity was front and center in education. 
Yeah, there's no doubt that the ancients had ed- ways of educating themselves. But the modern university that you have in your mind right now, where in which we have a body of uh, students come and they train under a faculty of professors and eventually to receive a diploma for their work, that idea is out of a Christian tradition that comes out of the monasteries, then eventually the cathedral schools, and then eventually the three first modern universities founded by Christ followers in Bologna, Paris, and Oxford. And even right now, if you were to, to, to Google the top 15 universities in the world by any metric, you will find that they were founded by Christ followers. Even if they no longer even like Jesus, they were certainly founded for the purpose of educating about Jesus and other disciplines, of course. And if you were to go to those campuses, and just visit the campuses, from the original buildings where they taught students, you will see the etchings, carvings, stained glass, and inscriptions that, from which you can reconstruct the story of Jesus just from the 15 campuses of the top 15 universities in the world. And I did that in the book, and it's all in the footnotes. You can see where I got all the data. But my point is, you have to destroy 15, well, more than that, because the top 75 out of the top 100 universities were all founded by Christians. So this is globally, okay? Mm-hmm. So if you're going to to try to destroy Jesus, you have to do a lot of deconstruction of universities as well, because those were originally there for a very different purpose. Wouldn't it be interesting for you to present that evidence over at, say, the Ivy League? Those kids oh, might be a little no bit doubt. astonished to hear the history yeah. of their own schools. Oh, it's, it's, it's fascinating, really. And all of this now, we have denied. Here's what we're doing. We're standing on the shoulders of Christ in his, the history of which he initiated and pretending like he wasn't here. And that's why I would say the things that I thought were most valuable as an atheist, right? Visual arts, uh, literature, music, education, science. That's the stuff I used to revere. I I have a degree in in design and a master's degree in architecture before I became a a police officer. And all of that stuff is utterly dependent. We're using technology right now to record, uh, to, to broadcast this, right? And I've, I've, we record stuff on TV all the time. People are going to hear me hear a podcast or this broadcast. Do you realize that stands on the shoulders of the science that preceded it? And the fathers, the vast majority of fathers of all modern sciences were Christ followers. Right. I mean, it just, we've just kind of ignored our own history as a people group. And, and the, the fact of it is, is that, is that young people need to re- recognize this. And all of this from a nobody in some obscure corner of the uh, Roman Empire who never moved more than about 200 miles from the nowhere town where he was born and the nowhere town where he was raised, who didn't have his own family, never read a, uh, led a, a nation, never ruled an army, never wrote a sonnet, never wrote a book, never had a kids of his own, was persecuted all over the country, then eventually executed uh, brutally, and they had to borrow a grave to bury him. That's the guy. That nobody changes everything. Now, how, how could that possibly be? Unless, of course, he's not a person at all, and he's the God of the universe. If, if the God of the universe entered into his creation, he would have the kind of impact that Jesus of Nazareth had. And that's why I think that this kind of impact needs to be taught to our kids. And seen as what it is, it's an evidence for the deity of, of, of Jesus. Amen. Well said. And the unique history's unique person of interest is Jesus, as you say. And his appearance was the singular event that changed human history. For those who are listening who may not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Jim, how do you put all this together for that skeptic? Well, look, I can teach you all there is to know about Jesus, right? But to be honest, if you start to trust what, what, what the Gospels say about Jesus, you ought to trust what they say about you. And for me, I got to a place where I realized that Jesus was who he said he was, but then I just had belief that. I didn't have belief in. That's a different step. It wasn't until I started to examine what the New Testament said about me, and I realized, wow, you know, it's really describing me really pretty well. I mean, I am a finite, fallen creature who might have a good day on occasion, but I'm not a morally perfect creature. 
and I'm not a morally perfect being, which God is. So if I'm trying to be in God's presence, I look pretty dirty by comparison, right? It's like oil and water. How do I unite these two things? So it's what I learned about Jesus and the perfection of God that helped me to understand my own perfection and need for a Savior. No one looks for that Savior until they first understand their own need. So I just want to encourage you to, number one, realize who you are. So that when you see the God of the universe in history, you'll recognize who he is. He is a wonderful savior indeed. Well, the name of the book, Person of Interest, Jay Warner Wallace. You can check out more at his website, jaywarnerwallace.com. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Jim. Great book, and it was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You bet. God bless. Thank you for being with us on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Meffer today is brought to you in part by the new documentary, The Jesus Music, from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters, now playing. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie.